0: But the book of Hebrews has a high view of Jesus. Um, The whole Bible does, of course. But there's something unique about the book of Hebrews in the way that it emphasizes the personal work of Christ. I think it has probably, Christology is the doctrine of Christ. I think the book of Hebrews probably has the highest Christology in all the Bible. Um, it, It seems like the author wants to drive a stake Of grace into our hearts, emphasizing the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. He is glory. We do not have a wimpy, weak, pathetic Savior. We have a powerful, and glorious, and tough, and durable, and mighty Savior. This morning, Our text tells us that we have full access to God through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to have full access to God. There's no other way to have access to God on good terms at all except through Christ. But through Christ, we have full access to God. And this full access is given to us through Jesus in order that we might live full lives. Full access for full lives. In other words, it's not, it's not access just so that we can bring it to ourselves, this wonderful access that we have with God and stay to ourselves and think about this for ourselves and have nice, warm feelings for ourselves. But we have full access to God through Jesus and here's how the text goes. Therefore, live full lives. The glorious work of Jesus as high priest And sacrifice gives us this access to God so that we may live full lives. Full access to God, full lives. That's that's the point of this passage. This full access comes to us through the dual work of Christ. There's there's two things that the first few verses tell us Jesus does to give us this full access. First, that he sacrificed himself, he poured out his blood once for all, and then second, that he is presently working as high priest in the presence of God on our behalf. That he's poured out his blood, that he's now present in the presence of God interceding for us. We see this in verses 19 to 21. First, in verse 19 and 20, we have full access by the blood of Jesus. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his blood. He's, he's bringing the, the, his, his initial readers back to the Old Covenant and the holy place. The holy place was the inner sanctum, you might say, where God dwelt. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and one person could go there, and he could go once a year, and he had to go with blood. But now we, as Christians, through faith in Christ, we have confidence to enter the true holy place, not this copy of the holy place, but the true holy place, the true place where God dwells, by the blood of Jesus. Notice it's a new and living way. It is a new way, different from the old, and it's a living way. Having been bought by the blood of Jesus, having died with Christ, and been raised to newness of life, we can draw near to God. Guys, remember when Jesus suffered on the cross and he was, he was hanging there for hours and then it says he breathed his last and something amazing happened. The curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. The, the curtain was like, I think I, think I read one, one time, it was about four inches thick. And it was ripped from top to bottom signifying no human being did that. God did that. Christ suffered and died on the cross. His flesh was torn open. His blood was poured out. And the way into God's presence, access to God, is granted to all who come this way through Jesus. So full access is by the blood of Jesus. Second, full access is by By the present intercession of Jesus as our high priest. Verse 21, he is present there as our advocate. And since we have, right now, a great high priest over the house of God. He is alive. Jesus is alive in the presence of God today. He poured out his blood. He he, he died. He was buried. but, But now he's alive. He's raised from the dead. He is Ascended to God's right hand, he is there in the presence of God. We read last, two weeks ago, in chapter 9, on our behalf, for us. It's amazing. Jesus is in the presence of God, always covering for you and always advocating for you. He is a powerful, present, and eternal mediator for you in the presence of God. And so we have strong confidence and encouragement before God. And it is not in ourselves, not even an ounce in ourselves based on how well we're doing today or how good we think we are. It is in Jesus alone. It's in and through Christ. We have this Glorious foundation, or to change the metaphor from a building foundation to the roots of a tree. The work of Jesus as our high priest is a strong root system in which we may grow up in Christ. And with such a strong root system, we indeed must grow up in Christ if we're truly connected to Him. These roots go deep. And they're thick and they're spread broad. I remember reading somewhere, I don't know if I have all the facts right, but I remember, remember reading somewhere that the mighty sequoia trees have a massive and widespread root system. They sink 12 to 14 feet deep, they're super thick, and they occupy, over, one tree occupies over an acre of earth. And not only that, but the root system has something like 85 to 90,000 of cubic feet Cubic feet of soil. It's massive. <laughs> and, well, they have to be, right? These, these trees are big. 300 feet tall, 2 million pounds, that's pretty big. It needs to keep them balanced. To be rooted in Christ's work for us as our high priest and sacrifice is to be rooted in solid, solid root system through which we may grow up in him. It's from this vantage point that of the fully loaded work of Jesus, his work on our behalf, his sacrifice for us, his present high priestly ministry, which gives us full access to God. It's from this vantage point that we're given three commands here. Okay? We have full access, and so what should we do? We're given three commands. Three commands to live full lives. To live full lives before God, To live full lives in light of the future and to live full lives together. And each command comes with a weighty and serious tone. So we're gonna look at each one of these commands and this is gonna take the rest of our time. So because of the work of Jesus, how should we respond? Three commands. The first command is draw near to God. Draw near to God. I was thinking just early this morning just a thought popped into my mind. If you knew a man or a family, a man, who was the the heir of his great uncle's rich and massive estate, $10 million, and you knew that this man was three months behind on his mortgage payment, and his family's eating ramen noodles for dinner, dinner every night. Nothing wrong with ramen noodles, but you get the point. I mean, they're, they're eating hardly anything, and behind on their mortgage payment, He knows that he has that inheritance, but he's doing nothing to access it. How crazy would that be? How crazy is it for us to be the rich spiritual heirs of such a glorious inheritance and not access it? The first thing we're commanded to do is draw near to God, If you have full access to him, what are you waiting for? Draw near to him. Draw near to God. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water because we have access to God through Christ's finished work on the cross. And his present intercession draw near. We were made for God. God is the fountain of unspeakable joy. And we are bidden to come near. John Piper said in his book, God is the Gospel, which is a fantastic book. He said the greatest good of the good news, the Gospel, is the enjoyment of fellowship with God himself the greatest good of the gospel is the enjoyment of fellowship with god it's not trying to get god to do mainly do other things for us but it is that we get god himself so we draw near this is the greatest concern of the author of hebrews he 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 bangs this drum throughout the book and chapter 4 verse 16 since we have a great high priest Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Hebrews 7.25, he talks about those that Jesus is able to save completely to the uttermost, eternally. Who is it? It's those that draw near to God through him. Chapter 10, verse 1, how paltry and incapable the old covenant was to cleanse the conscience of the one who drew near to God. Christ is able to cleanse our conscience and he opens the way and we are bidden to come near to God, to draw near to him. The author wants his readers to understand that Jesus takes away sin and intercedes for us in order that we may draw near and live near to God. Now the opposite of this is to kind of keep God on the margins of our lives or kind of keep him as like the co-pilot or the, you know, vice president of our lives or something. Something other than at the center. It's easier to have him, as, I mean, in, in one way, it's easier to have him at the margins, right? He's kind of has, has partially a say, but we don't want to get too close We are to draw near to God, to live near to him. We see the connection between the finished work of Jesus and this drawing near in in verses 19 through 21 and 22. And here's what the author says. Since we have confidence through the blood of Jesus and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, draw near. You hear that? Christ has poured his blood out. Perfect sacrifice. Your sins are removed. The the thing that would keep you from God, it's been removed. He remembers them no more. And He's opened the way to draw near to God, and He stands there on your behalf. Now, if He had only taken our sins away, but He wasn't there on our behalf now, we may not have confidence to go there, but we do because He's standing there on our behalf now, covering for us. It's like he's saying to the father as we draw near, he's ours. I died for him. My blood suffices for him. Let him come near. Let her come near. Not that the father has to be reminded, but you get the point. He's saying, they're ours. So we may come near. Now don't let the words, let us Those two words fool you. We hardly ever use those two words. We almost always just squish them together and say let's, don't we? Do you ever hear anyone say, let us have lunch now? (laughs) It just sounds kind of like old English or something. And and if you you say that, that's great. I'm not knocking you for that. But it just sounds proper and polite and more like a suggestion. Here in America, we just say, let's eat. (laughs) right? Let's go to the table and eat. Let's chow down. And that's that's the thrust that the the author, let us, or, or let's, is an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. We're not being, it's not being suggested to us, you know, I mean, if you have time or if you think it's a good idea, draw near. He's saying, let's go, let's go. And I love how the author, it's like he's including us. He doesn't say, you go. He says, let's draw near together. Since we have confidence through Christ, his blood poured out, his present intercession, what are we waiting for? Let's go. But we're told to draw near in a particular way, right? We see draw near, and then there's, he says, with something. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, draw near with a true heart, true as opposed to phony, I suppose, true or sincere or genuine as opposed to fake or feigned. Now the heart represents the entire inner life, the the entire inner person. It's not talking about draw near with you know that thing that's pumping blood in your body. It's to, talking about the command control centers of our lives. Draw near with that, with a true heart. Have you ever heard the saying, "Whatever has your heart has you." It's true. Whatever has a hold of your heart has a hold of you. It can't be any other way. In Proverbs, King Solomon said, watch over your heart with all diligence for from your heart flow the springs of life. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who praised God with their lips, but it says that their hearts were far from God. They could be in a service like this and enjoy singing. A Pharisee could and yet their hearts were far from him. So we're told to draw near with a true heart. Maybe maybe it's best to say with an entire heart, with a whole heart, a single heart. Then it says, draw near with with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Fully assured in Christ. To be fully assured in Christ and draw near to God, that, that's the only road that leads to God. I think I mentioned this before. It's, it's the only mountain peak, excuse me, it's the only road that leads to the mountain peak of, of God's presence. If you go to Rocky Mountain National Park, there is one road that takes you to the top and down to the other side. It's Trail Ridge Road. Takes you to the highest point in the, in the park, if you go to Glacier National Park, there's one road that goes through the whole park. Then I mean, you can turn off in other areas, but there's one road that goes through the whole park. I think it's called Going to the Sun Road. Is that right? Something like that. I was there last summer. One road! There's one road that leads to the mountaintop of God's presence, and it is fully assured in Christ. Period. That's it. But we may come near if we come by this road. And we can come with confidence. So I think what he's saying, when he says draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, he's saying draw near with the totality of our heart, your hearts, absorbed, fully engaged, looking fully to Christ. And when you come that way, you may come boldly, resting completely on Christ, That he has opened the way through the shedding of his blood and that he stands in the presence of God for me right now. One thing I think the emphasis on coming in a particular way means is that we are not to come mindlessly before God. We're not to come with loud voices necessarily. Doesn't matter if you come with tears or not necessarily. It matters that you come through Jesus. It matters that you come with a whole heart, looking fully to Christ, because then we may come with boldness. Now, the question is, when should we come to God? When should we draw near to Him? Let us draw near, the author says. Let us draw near. Not when you get home, right? Like this sounds like a good idea when I get home today. No, he's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of Jewish Christians. He's writing to a church saying, "Let us do this. Let's go." So not when you get home, not at some opportune time, whatever time that will be, not when you feel particularly mystical or spiritual, not when you get over depression. Not when you get past the holidays. We're past the holidays, but you know. Not when we get past this busy season in life. Not when work slows down. Not when you get some alone time and do some self-care and then you'll draw near to God. No! Now! Right now! We're, this is church, right? We're to draw near to God Now! The author is, is, is teaching these people how we worship God. We worship God by drawing near to him and singing and hearing his word and praying and fellowshipping and all of these things. We, ju- we do it near to God. If you are a Christian if the blood of Jesus has been poured out for you, if you have had your conscience cleansed, if Christ is standing in the presence of God on your behalf now, the big question is, what are you waiting for? And I don't say that as a rebuke. I'm just saying, let's go. Let's, let's follow his command. Let's go. Let's draw near to God. The command is this, draw near to God. The second command we see, based on Christ's glorious work for us, is that we are, we are to hold tightly To our hope. Verse 23 Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I love, we sang it earlier, um, standing on the promises. That line that says, standing on the promises that cannot fail. Cannot fail. Not like 98% chance it won't. It's like it can't. God's promises cannot fail. And he who promised is faithful. Now I think this idea of holding fast to the confession of our hope is pointing us to the future. Our future hope in Christ And what is our final hope? Well, the the end of the chapter says this. Chapter 10, verse 37. One of the last verses of this chapter. It says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. The coming one is Christ. Christ is coming again. And he's going to set everything right. He's going to put everything right. He's going to right every wrong. Every injustice is going to be righted through Jesus. He's going to do that. He's going to destroy every enemy of his truth. He's going to do that. And the dead in Christ shall be raised. Yesterday, Kenny Elgrim was buried in the ground. He died a week and a half ago. And someday you're going to die too. And I'm going to die. And our hope is that when Christ returns, we're going to be raised again. We're going to be raised again with incorruptible, indestructible, immortal bodies. It's so funny. Silas didn't know what I was preaching on today. He's like, Dad, this morning before church, he was asking if anyone has ever been raised like Jesus from the dead. And so we got into this theological conversation about 8.45 or so, And I said, well, I mean, Jesus raised people from the dead. And I think people have been, you know, people have been raised from the dead from the time of Christ till till now through prayer and so forth. But no one has been raised like Jesus. He said, what do you mean? I said, everyone who's been raised from the dead up until now, except for Jesus, has died again. Jesus was given a body that would never die again. And that's our hope. Our hope. That is our hope. Jesus was raised from the dead incorruptible. Here's what I mean. Lazarus, Jesus raised him from the dead. I don't know how old he was, doesn't say, but he died again. Kenny was not raised from the dead. He'll be raised to everlasting life in a brand new body that works perfectly. Christ is coming again and the dead in Christ will be raised. Our our hope takes us to the end of history and the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul calls this our blessed hope, or our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was something that the early Christians knew well, and it made them incredibly durable and strong and courageous. And we're told to hold fast to this hope and to do so without wavering, unbending, not yielding an inch. Hold fast. Reed mentioned this earlier. Clinging. And we're given a good reason to do this. Because he's faithful. Because he is faithful. Now, why do we need to hold so tightly? Well, when do you need to hold tightly to something? when it's really windy outside, when there's a strong storm, when you're on a bumpy road. I remember when I was in Tanzania visiting the Loudermilks and their uh, Camilla was very young at the time, their adopted daughter, and the roads there are very bumpy. (laughs) I mean, and you should see Brian drive on those roads. Oh my goodness, it's something else. He does not take it careful. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Mandy was holding on, this one particular time, Mandy was holding on to Camilla for for life (laughs) because he's bumpy roads and Brian's driving. You hold tightly to something when you're going through a storm or you're in rough waters or you're on a bumpy road or there's strong headwind. You hold tightly, we're to hold tightly to our hope because the New Testament is absolutely clear that life is going to be hard, difficult. We're going to face trials. We're going to suffer. All of these things. We're, we're promised that these things will happen. And so we're to hold tightly to our hope. The Christians that the author is writing to here, these Jewish Christians, they are being ostracized. They're being They're being marginalized in society. Some of them have been thrown in jail. Others have had their homes either confiscated or plundered. Imagine coming home, going home from church and seeing your windows broken out and graffiti on your house and stuff, you know, your house looted. That's what these Christians experience. And he says, hold fast the confession of your hope. He's not just saying, hey, tomorrow's gonna be better than today. He's saying, hold on to the confession of your hope. The one who promised is faithful. A hope that stretches out into the future, looking to the eternal reward when the coming one comes. I love the old hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, right? Because all this is banked on a God who's faithful who is faithful, who does not lie, who makes promises and keeps them. The opening verse of great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Thou changest not, God does not change. He's faithful. Our confidence and our future hope is grounded in something strong, God's faithfulness to keep his promises. This is what fills our hearts and fills our hope with more than just wishful thinking, but with the rock-solid assurance of a faithful God who will not and cannot fail. And it's built on what Christ has done, the incarnation. He came, became man. His perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his his ascension, his present intercession. The promise that he's coming again is based off of that stuff. He's coming. As I mentioned before, this, this kind of hope is what made or gave Christians all through the history of the church, has given Christians the intensity and courage to face the worst. I'm reading a Christian history book <clears throat> uh, to a few kids that I do some homeschooling with and, on, on Tuesdays, and we read about this young slave girl named Blandina in the second century in Lyon, France, She was a Christian during a time when there was intense persecution of Christians. 22 year old, little, petite woman in jail, beaten mercilessly, brought out to the arena, tied to a stake with some other Christians. And they let lions loose, and all the other Christians were torn to shreds and killed, except her. She wasn't touched. Threw, thrown back in jail, beaten again by the, by the guards. I mean, just just horrific. Brought out again in the arena, tied to a stake a second time. She lifts her hands. I mean, get, she lifts her hands and says, Oh, Lord, gracious Father, help me suffer well for the glory of Christ. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Somebody, one eyewitness said she looked as if she were invited to a wedding feast. The radiance of her face, not thrown to the beasts. She still was unharmed by the beasts. Her persecutors were frustrated and angry. They wrapped her in a net. They threw her to a bull who tossed her around the arena, goring her. Eventually, one of, the, one of the guards took out a sword and slew her right there the pagans in the arena some of them had said it was reported that they had never seen a woman suffer so much or for so long guards stood watch preventing friends of blandina and other christians preventing their friends from taking their bodies and burying them when they were asked why won't you let them bury their dead the guards said so they may have no hope in the resurrection they said it is this hope that gives them such courage. Burn their bodies to ashes, throw through their ashes in the Rhone River. Of course, that won't stop God from raising them from the dead when Christ comes. What headwinds are you facing right now? What fiery trial are you walking through? And if you're not now, trust me, you will. You will. Jesus said, He didn't say, I promise you, but it is a promise. In this world, you'll have trouble. You'll have tribulation. And when you go through it, or if you are right now, the command is because of what Christ has done, hold fast your hope. God is faithful to keep His promises. Command number three. The third command is, in light of the finished work of Christ, his blood poured out, his present intercession at God's right hand for us, we are to consider one another. Verses 24 and 25. And consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet, one, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are told to consider one another. To consider means to think about, to focus on. This is specifically language about personal relationships in the church. How are we to, how are we to do life together? How are we to live fully together? Well, one way is we consider one another. One other place the author uses this word translated consider is in Hebrews 3.1, where he says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. There he's telling us to look at Jesus, to study Jesus, to focus on Jesus. And here the direct object is not Jesus, it's one another. Consider one another. Focus on one another. Study one another. Think about one another. Specifically, as to how to stir one another up to love and good works. I think he's saying here, not that we should be consumed with this and not consumed with Jesus, but in our being consumed with Jesus, we should seek how can we best Love one another and stir one another up to love and good works. The word that's translated stir up is uh, similar to our English word paroxysm, which is a word that describes like a, a seizure. It's a very strong word. The idea is to irritate or incite or provoke or stimulate. To provoke. Let's take that idea. Think of it as a grace-filled provoking. How can we provoke one another to love and good works? Or stimulate. If you like coffee, you know what a stimulant is, right? How can we serve like gracious coffee, spiritual coffee for one another, to stimulate one another to love and good works? I'm so glad he says love and good works, not just love. If he had just said love, we might think that he's talking about just loving feelings. Feelings of love. We should stir one another up to feelings of love. I'm not against feelings at all. But he says love and good works. And of course, true love always works for the good of others, doesn't it? The grace of God isn't just so that we can have good vibes or nice, loving feelings, but rather that our hearts may be changed and motivated to serve one another in love. We're actually given a very practical way in which we're, we're, in which we're, we're to do this. Verse 25 says, don't forsake gathering together. This is a continuation of what he's saying. One way that we stir one another up to love and good works, well, we have gotta to be together. Right? Don't forsake gathering together, but encourage one another. Now it's interesting. He doesn't, he doesn't contrast don't forsake gathering together, gather together. That's not what he says. He says don't forsake gathering together, but rather encourage one another. In other words, don't just get together, but get together ready to encourage. Ready to Give courage to one another to live for Christ, to love and to good works. And he says this, and do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day, of course, being the day of Christ the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, Christ's return. We are not to be more lax the closer we get to Christ's return. We're not to be more lax. As we grow up in Christ, as we mature more and more in Christ and we walk with him longer and longer, it doesn't make us more loose and easy in our Christian, it makes us more serious. Joyful, no doubt, right? Gracious, kind, all of that. But it makes us more serious, not less. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to be more earnest, more serious, more watchful, more concerned. And not just about ourselves, but more concerned about each other. And this is something that the, Writer says earlier in the book of Hebrews, he talks about gathering together so that we're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So we're to do this all the more as we get nearer to the day. To the day, Jesus said near the end that lawlessness will increase, and the love of many will grow cold. And so we're to help each other that that would never describe us. Amen. Lawlessness, I don't care about God's law. I just live, I'm under grace. I just live the way I want. And love growing cold, we're to help each other. We're to consider how to stir each other up to remain fiery for Christ. Christ to love and good works. So let me wrap this up. In conclusion, because of what Christ has done, what he has done to give us full access, he has shed blood, he's opened the way, he stands there on our behalf now. We are to live full lives. And here's how we do it. You were made for God. Draw near to him through Christ. You belong to God. Hold tightly to your hope, unmoved by headwinds, undaunted by shaking, because God is faithful and he cannot fail. And therefore your hope is certain and it's better than you can imagine. And finally, in Christ you've been joined to each other as a body you are here for a significant reason if you're a Christian you are here for a significant reason and so consider one another study and seek the Lord about how you can be a stimulant how you can provoke how you can be a catalyst how you can stir people up to love and good works and to do this all the more as we get closer to the marvel of marvels when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are so good to us. We don't deserve it. It's good for us to remember that, to recognize that, so that we always live by free grace.